book of Nehemiah, chapter number 6. Well, this day is starting off a whole lot better than last Sunday. I've, uh, at least I have several sympathizers in the congregation. I, uh, there was one time I thought maybe to be a member of this church that you had, to, in order to qualify, you had to have back surgery and gout. And uh, it seems like sooner or later it gets around to all of us. And so at least I'm... Uh, I'm able to stand this morning. There are different stages of gout, and uh, and sometimes you can't stand at all, and sometimes you can't hardly stand it because you can stand. And uh, but I'm so thankful for the privilege that God's given me to be able to be here, and uh, I want to thank all of those that uh, that have helped in whatever way. A few weeks ago, as I started this new short series of messages, I stated that it's a sad fact, but it's true that most disciples, most Christians today, never really learn how to deal with the dangerous devices of the devil, and ultimately that leads to their destruction. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that we're going to be talking about these dangerous devices of the devil. And if we had a title for the series of messages, that would be it. Dangerous devices of the devil. And there are several that we'll be talking about. We've already talked about the matter of deception. We're going today to be talking about uh, diversion. There's doubt, discouragement, delay, dissension. There's a long list of things that, that we could mention. General Douglas MacArthur wrote an article many years ago entitled Requisites for Military Success. And that great military leader said there are four ingredients necessary to win any battle. There is morale... Strength, supply, and lastly, knowledge of the enemy. Of that last one, MacArthur said, the greater the knowledge of the enemy, the greater the potential for victory. In The Art of War by Sun Sun Tzu, he said, all warfare is based on deception. And... uh, We talked about that, but that's not the only thing we need to talk about. We also need to guard against the matter of diversion. That's the title of today's message. Have you ever thought about all of the many things that God wants to do for us, with us, and through us as a church? Have you thought about that? Let me assure you, the devil has. Satan has thought about all of those things. He is not blind as to what the Lord has been doing here at this church. He's not ignorant of the things that God wants to do in this place. Satan knows all of that. And it's my guess that every every leader in the church, every teacher, every worker... 
at some time or another, they've given some thought as to what they would like to see God do through this church. Some of us dream of the day when when those dreams become a reality. And many of us can already say that we've seen those dreams come true. We've seen God answer our prayers. We've seen God accomplished things that we wondered whether or not we would ever see. Well, you can rest assured that Satan does not want those things to happen and that he will literally do anything within his power to stop it. We are in a struggle, a life and death struggle. This is the fight of our lives. That's not just a little cute Cliché, it's the truth, folks. And warfare is never pleasant. It's downright ugly. In warfare, people get hurt. In warfare, there is discomfort. In warfare, there are great difficulties that we have to face. There's always something or someone that's trying to stop us and to keep us from getting to the place where God wants us to be. I love reading the stories of successful people. And if you'll notice here in Nehemiah chapter 6, we see one of those stories. Nehemiah chapter number 6 and verse 1. Now, it came to pass when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arabian and the rest of our enemies heard that I had builded the wall and that there was no breach left therein, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates, that Sanballat and Gershom sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. They thought to do me mischief. And I sent messengers unto them, saying, I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and come down to you? Yet they sent spies unto me four times after this sort, and I answered them after the same manner. I wish I had time to relate to you the entire story of Nehemiah, but I don't. I just want to point out one simple truth and make one important observation, and, and that's this, that the main reason why Nehemiah was able to accomplish so much is that he refused to allow his attention to be diverted from the work at hand. Here he is involved in the rebuilding of the walls. Remember, this is the security of the city. Their welfare depends upon the success of this man and his helpers. And the enemy knows that. And so the enemy approaches, and by the way, if you had time to really look down through this chapter, you would see that that there's more than just one temptation. In other words, there's more than one's scheme. When one thing failed, they, they were ready with another one. 
In other words, always trying to provide something that will stop this work in its tracks. And so they came to Nehemiah and said, why don't we just all get together and we'll meet in one of the villages. Now notice they don't give any details here. And Nehemiah knows these men. He knows their evil purpose. He knows their past track record. And he knew that they sought to do him nothing but evil. They just wanted to stop the work. And notice what he says. He says, I am doing a great work. I mean, listen folks, that'll keep you going when nothing else will. Understanding the importance of what you're doing for God. I'm doing a great work. That was the attitude that King David had. You'll remember that King David, as he challenged the people, and he said, the work is great. And it was great because he says it was for the Lord. And whether you're talking about the work way back then or whether you're talking about the work today, the work is great. It's just as great today as it was then. Nehemiah was building the walls. David was preparing for the temple to be built. But regardless of what the intent is or the goal, the work is great because it's God's work. Nehemiah said, why should I stop this great work that I'm doing to come down to you? And notice he says that I will not come down. He was emphatic in his answer. I mean, there was no dialogue, there was no debate about the issue whatsoever, just a flat refusal that I am not stopping the work, I'm not coming down. And four more times, you see the devil doesn't give up. Four more times they sent men to him again with a new proposal, I suppose, and, you know, just in some way trying to trip him up. And each and every time he answered the same way, the work is great, I'm not going to stop. That was the thing that enabled him to be the success that he was. You see, diversion has always been one of the favorite tactics in warfare. In fact, Joshua used that. When you go back and study the, the story of Israel against Ai, and, and they resorted to the tactic of diversion, and it's just a, a common thing. And down through history, in battle after battle, warfare after warfare, people have resorted to diversion. But for every one time that man has used that tactic, the devil has used it a million times. That's one of the devil's favorite tactics is to divert our attention so that he can defeat us. And he'll use almost anything to accomplish that. It is a deadly device of the devil that leads to our destruction. Now... Let's talk about diversion this morning. First of all, diversion can be accomplished by many different things in several different ways. And we could all make a a list. And by the way, I made a short list this morning just for the purpose of this message. Things that Satan uses to divert our attention away from what we ought to be doing. 
You might start somewhere else, but I've chosen to start with this one because of the times in which we live and the place that we live and considering here in America the situation that we're in. I'm convinced that one of the main devices that Satan uses today to divert our attention is amusement. Amusement. Think about it. I'm, there was a time that America was great because we produced things. We built things. We didn't just build things. We built the very best things. I can remember as a boy and I mean, if something had made in Japan on it, you just automatically threw it away. It was junk. It was trash. Today, in Japan, they make some of the best electronic things in all of the world. And we make some of the cruddiest junk in the world. But in our day, we're given more to amusement. That word amusement literally means to divert to turn aside or amuse. And that's what Satan uses. We've made a God out of sports, recreation, entertainment. I don't know about you, but it just literally makes me sick to my stomach whenever I, whenever I see maybe on the news or one of these shows on TV that's devoted entirely to the entertainment industry. The lifestyles of the rich and the famous. And we see these people making millions and millions of dollars. These people that are able to live in the lap of luxury. Just for entertaining people. I mean, think about it here. I mean, the football players, for example, they had this lockout here a while back and everybody was worried about the season, whether it was going to have a season of football or not. More worried about that than they, than they are concerned about whether we're going to get our troops out of Afghanistan or not. You ask a mother or a father who has a son or a daughter in Afghanistan or Iraq what really bothers them, and I'll guarantee you it doesn't have anything to do with the entertainment industry. And it's so amazing to me that people, famous people, some, some of which have no talent whatsoever, I mean, if someone like Taylor Swift, who can't sing a lick, I mean, excuse me, I mean, maybe, that is pitiful. Really. And here she is in the limelight of our society with all of these accolades and making millions of dollars. And we can't even come up with the money to pay our school teachers a decent salary or our our, our, what, amen. That's pitiful when we get in a situation like that. I think about our troops and uh, what many of them go through when they get back. Sometimes what they go through when they get back to the States is more difficult than what they faced while they were away. And it's shameful the way they're treated. We wonder sometimes what is most important to Americans, and all we've got to do is follow the money trail. Just look around and see where we spend our money. It's on sports, 
entertainment and things of that nature. Now, don't you misunderstand, I'm not some wild-eyed fanatic that thinks it is a terrible sin to play ball or to hunt or to fish or to have a hobby and to do those things. I don't have a problem with any of those things, but I've got a big problem with all of those things whenever we let those things crowd God out of our life. When those things become a hindrance to what we ought to be doing. I could stand here for the next 30 minutes and talk about the way that God dealt with me shortly after I was saved. I surrendered to preach. And it wasn't long after that I began to realize that if I'm going to do what God wants me to do, I've got to make some changes. I'd like to stand here and tell you that my love for God was so great that it was easy for me to make those decisions. But I'd be lying because it was very difficult. And I can remember Dad, the week after week after week, saying, Son, how about we go hunting or fishing this weekend? And I'd say, Dad, I can't do it. Why not? Because I've got to be in church. And I can remember him saying, don't you like to spend time with me anymore? And I said, sure, I love you, Dad. I love spending time with you. He said, well, don't you like to hunt and fish anymore? I said, I love it. I love it as much as I ever did. He said, well, then why don't you go? And I said, because I realize there's something more important than that. And I've tried to instill that in my children. I've not always been successful, but I've worked at that. Our children have been involved in different things, all the way from the girls, you know, and their different activities, and the boys in sports and what have you. And the one rule that we had, and I made clear at the beginning of every season, and that's no ball games on Sunday. At least not on Sunday during church time. If you can crowd it in the afternoon or something, that'll be fine. I've embarrassed my children as a result of that. It's a, listen, that's a bitter pill for a child to swallow whenever dad goes walking out across the football field and says, look, I need to tell you something right up at the front. And that is that my son can't play football on Sunday. Listen, we've got to draw the line somewhere. And let me tell you that if, listen, if you give an inch, they'll take a mile. If you leave the impression with the child that it's not a really big deal, later on you're going to discover that when you're trying to get them back in church, when they're 18 or 20 years old, they're going to remember, well, it's not really a big deal. You see the impression that you're making? Listen... I'm not just talking about children. I'm talking about all of us being sidetracked by amusements. But that's not the only thing. In addition to amusements, there's the allure of things. And that's why the Bible warns us again and again. First Timothy chapter number 6. And here we find Paul warning young Timothy in regards to his ministry and his life. And he says in chapter 6 and verse 6 that godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and a certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. I mean, I would suppose we've all conquered that, though, right? 
Boy, if you want to measure how spiritual you are, just let that sink in a little while. And sometimes we lie to ourselves when deep down we know the truth. Think about it. Could we really be content if all we had was just food and raiment? That's all. Just food and clothes. That's all we've got. Listen, just with that, you're much richer than a lot of people in a lot of places in the world. And we ought to be thankful for that. But he goes on and gets to the root of the issue. And he says, verse number 9, But they that be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition for, now listen, not money, but for the love of money. The love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, love, patience, meekness, and so forth. The allurement of things. There are people that would never sell out because of amusement. I mean, sports just doesn't mean that much to them. They have no hobby they love that much. There is nothing out there that attracts them. But there's something within. A battle raging, and that battle is over material things. They want more and more and more. And when the price gets right, they're willing to sell out. You'd be absolutely amazed how many people would leave the church, pick up their family and move way across the country where they had no friends and no family just for a substantial raise in pay. Let me tell you in the first place, being a member of the church where God wants you to be ought to mean more to you than that. You know, if we'll make a few basic fundamental decisions, we can avoid a lot of turmoil in our life. You see, if you will answer a few basic questions, there are a thousand and one other questions that you've already answered by doing that. I don't have to wonder what state I'm supposed to live in. I mean, that's already settled for me. I've got to live in Texas. Like it or not, I've got to live in Texas. And by the way, I love it in case you're wondering, but I've got to live in Texas. Uh, And listen, I don't have to wonder what I'm supposed to be doing. I know that God called me to preach, and that's a settled thing in my life. And the reason all of these other issues are settled is because... I know in my heart this is the church where God placed me. Oh, but you say you're the pastor, you're the preacher. I mean, that's well and good for you, but it's not that way for us. Why not? The Bible says God placed some in the church. If God didn't place you here, you're in the wrong place. I mean, if God didn't put you here, you ought to get up and walk out right now and go someplace where God wants you to be because that's all that matters, being where God wants you to be, doing what God wants you to do. That's all that matters. And if you answer that question, if that's settled in your heart, then all of these other questions are also answered. 
Don't allow the allurement of things out there in the world to get you away from the place God wants you to be. Well, for some it's amusement. For some it's the allurement of things. For others it's the attraction of sin. James talks about that. He talks about us being led away by our own lust. You know, the devil would never have to really do anything to tempt us because each and every one of us has a tempter within. That tempter is our own lust. I mean, we've got a natural tendency. There is a natural propensity on our part to do what is wrong. And in case you haven't discovered it, sin can be exceedingly pleasing to the flesh. There's pleasure in sin. I've listened to preachers that some way or another they tried to leave the impression that you need to get saved and you need to live for God because, oh, there's nothing pleasurable out there in the world. But I don't know what rock they crawled out from under, but, but I found sin quite pleasurable. Really? And some of you have heard me say over and over again, I mean, to this very day, I can't think of any liquid on earth that tastes better to me than beer. Cold beer, hot beer, makes no difference as long as it's beer to this very day. Although I quit drinking many, many years ago, nearly a half a century now. Still, the thing that to my palate that tastes the best is, is beer. Don't ever try to argue with your teenagers that they ought not sin because there's no pleasure in it. They're not that dumb. (laughs) They know there's pleasure in it. What they don't know is that after the pleasure comes the pain. And believe me, the pain far outweighs the pleasure that they experience. How sad it is to see someone sell out to the devil, someone that has been so attracted by some particular sin that it has ruined their Christian life. And all Satan has to do to divert their attention away from what is really important is just to dangle this particular sin in front of them. And by the way, I think we all have some particular sin. I think the Bible calls it our besetting sin. You know, I was just talking about beer. I could have talked about 40, 11 different things. And, you know, and all of those things maybe would never appear on your list. You might think to yourself, well, I don't see any pleasure in that at all. No, but there's something out there. There's something that would bring you pleasure. There is some particular sin. You see, you might not be tempted to do what someone else is tempted to do, but there is something that is strong enough to tempt you. And Satan knows all about it. And he'll use it to divert your attention away from what's really important in life. Now, there's another thing that has to be included on every list, and that's this. The appeal of good causes. The appeal of good causes. You you see, some of you love God far too much to ever sell out for material things. 
And you love God too much to stain your life with some vile, filthy sin. And Satan knows that. And so if Satan wants to divert your attention, he'll adopt some good cause. I can remember preaching a message entitled, When Sinless Things Become Sinful. And they do. Some things that in and of themselves are just fine. Whenever they get in the way of what's most important, those very same things become sin to us. My son David had a cap. This has been many, many years ago, and he probably forgot all about it, but he had a cap that said, So many fish, so little time. <laughs> so many fish, so little time. And, you know, well, it might not be fish for you. It might be something else, but a lot of people feel that way. Well, I want to change one word in that. So many issues, so little time. You see, we live in a day when there are a lot of critical issues facing us. I've known preachers who decided that out of love for their country, they become so desperate to see a change made in Washington that they literally walked off from the pulpit and and spent the rest of their life involved in politics. Let me tell you something. Anytime some politician stands up and declares, I used to pastor a church. Some of them even try to run on that platform and get the Christian vote. I got news for you. They're not impressing me at all because I think they're a pussyfoot and compromiser. If God called them to preach, then they are taking a demotion by being there in Washington. They ought to get out of politics and get back in the ministry where God put them. But there are a lot of good causes, and I understand the pressure they're under because I love my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren. I love them. I want to see them be able to enjoy the America that I knew. I want Norman Rockwell to become live to them. I want them to know the joy of living in the most powerful, prosperous nation on the face of the earth. I want them to go to bed at night with a sense of security. And I see all of that slipping away. And it would be so very easy at times to adopt that as the cause for which I live. Others have other ideas. It might be the Girl Scouts or the Boy Scouts. It could be a Number of different issues, things that people feel that need to be promoted. I don't know if you've ever watched it or not. I think it's called Houston Animal Cops. Is that the name of it? Anybody know? Really, it's rather interesting. And the thing about it that really amazes me is their devotion to these animals. Animals they've never seen before. Here's a horse or a cat or a dog that's nearly starved to death or that's been injured. And by the way, I believe that you ought to take care of animals. 
The Bible teaches that you ought to take care of your animals. So I'm all for that. The sad thing is some are more devoted to causes like that than they are the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are a lot of different issues, things that in and of themselves are good. It might be that that you're going to fight against abortion. I remember several years ago, one of our members coming to me wanting to know why I didn't go down and join the protest and grab a placard and walk up and down the street and protest abortion. They want to know if I was against it. I said, I am against it. Absolutely. Well, then why don't you join this group and that group and so on and so forth? Listen, I'm against communism. But I've got something more important to do than to spend my life fighting communists or abortionists or anything else. And that is to preach the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And I cannot, I dare not allow anything to distract me from that. It might be that your main concern has to do with education or homelessness or or the government or health or whatever it is. And all of these are important issues. And all of us have to come to grips with this decision. We must decide for us, what is it that needs my attention in order to do the will of God? And don't sell out when the devil's crowd comes around and tries to tempt you to stop. Secondly, diversion can bring awful results. Now, I know what time it is, and I know we've got a lopsided message, most of it on the front end, but please bear with me. Diversion can not only be caused by several different things, But it brings some awful results. Immediately I think about King Saul. Here's a man who is the king over God's people. Nobody had a more important position than this man. Here's a man who had power and prestige and all of those things. And yet as a result of him getting jealous over David. Now remember... He should have looked at David as his very best friend. I mean, David is the giant killer. David is the man that that was willing to risk all for the sake of Israel. David was a man who was loyal to his king. And yet Saul became jealous and spent the rest of his life trying to kill the man that he he should have adored. I'll never forget what David said at their encounter there in the cave, and you'll remember the story perhaps. And David said to Saul, he said, why do you pursue after me? He said, I'm nothing more than a, a, a flea or a dead dog. David was simply saying that you, spending your life trying to get rid of me, that's not worthy of your position. The terrible results brought about by us getting distracted from what is really important. That's why Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.4, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. You with me? 
In other words, if you're going to be a soldier, if God has put you in the ministry, if God has a battle for you to fight, a work for you to do, He said you can't let anything cause you to become entangled. And especially in that day, I mean, they had a standing army, as it were, in that those men were ready. I mean, here they are, a farmer one day, and when the signal was given, they dropped the plow and picked up the sword and they went to battle. And he said, you can't be entangled with the affairs of this world. And I'm telling you, we can't succeed as Christians. We can't accomplish the will of God for our life. And this church will never be able to realize its dreams if you and I get so entangled in the world that it hinders us from serving God. Now, I know there's a lot of other things that could be said, but in my mind, here's the final thing that really needs to be considered, and that's this. Diversion can be avoided. It can be. It ought to be, but it can be. We know that diversion is one of the devices of the devil that can lead to our destruction, but what can we do? How can we avoid diversion? Number one, keep your thoughts centered on God's Word. Nehemiah knew exactly what his mission was. Nehemiah knew that it was God that put him in that position. He knew from the Word of God, what He should be doing. And folks, if we're going to avoid diversion, we've got to keep our thoughts centered on the Word of God. Because it shows us what's really, truly important. Secondly, we have to keep our eyes focused on the Son of God. That's why Paul said in Hebrews, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. This is the key to absolutely everything, keeping our focus on the Son of God, our thoughts centered on the Word of God. Then thirdly, we have to keep our hands on the plow. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, the Lord said, no man that having put his hands to the plow and looking back is fit for my kingdom. The plow represents service. Putting your hands to the plow meant that you had entered into some sort of a ministry. In other words, you're involved in serving God. And the Lord said, if you take your hands off the plow, in other words, you quit serving, you're not worthy of my kingdom. We're not saved because of what we do, but because we're saved, it ought to determine what we do. Keep your hands on the plow. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't give in. There's great danger in inactivity. You don't believe it? Look at the life of David. The time for kings to go out to war, and instead of David being out yonder with his army, David stays behind and he sends the men out. Well, you know what happens next, right? I think if David had been where David was supposed to be, it would have never happened. Keep your hands on the plow, your eyes on the Son of God, your thoughts on the Word of God, and keep your heart in the worship of God. I've often said that worship is our springboard to to Christian service. In other words, 
We come together and we worship. And a while ago as we were singing, I don't know what you came to do. I just came to praise the Lord. I wish you could have been here. I wish you could have seen the faces of the people. I mean, they were radiant. They were smiling. They were joyful. And I think any lover of Christ is inspired by an experience like that. Worshiping God. And you mark it down, the person who begins to, to think of, of worship in a lighthearted way will soon end up out there in the world somewhere. If you want to keep the fire burning bright, if you want to keep the drive going, if you want to remain faithful to the end, then you better be faithful in your worship of the Lord. Folks, let me just wrap this all up. There's simply too much at stake for us to allow anything to hinder what God wants us to do. If we voted this morning, I think everyone would vote and say, yes, I believe that God's work is the most important thing in all of the world. We'd all vote that way. But do we all live as though that's really true? Is that the determining factor in your life? Oh, I, listen, I understand that God didn't call you to be a preacher that is a pastor or a missionary in the strictest sense. I understand that. And I understand that not all of you are ordained as deacons. I understand not all of you hold an office in the church. I realize that. But I hope you understand that your position, whatever it is, is just as important as my position, and you need to take it just as serious as our deacons or our trustees or Brother Kenneth or anybody else. You're not a nobody. You are a somebody with an important job to do. And the devil is working overtime trying to divert your attention away from what's really, truly important. And it's too important for you to let him win this battle. There's too much at stake. Now, maybe you're here today and it might be that your attention has already been diverted. You've already, you've already, uh, You've already compromised. You haven't dropped out of church yet. But for all practical purposes, you're just, you know, you're just kind of hanging on. You're on the periphery. Your need is to regain your focus. Please listen carefully. I'll be done in two or three minutes. To regain your focus. You see, it's not good enough. When you're driving down the highway, it's not good enough for you to be focused on the road 99% of the time. That's not good enough. Because all it takes is just one brief fleeting moment for you to lose your attention, for it to be diverted to something else, and you to have have a wreck and to lose your life. I can't tell you how many times, especially years ago, that Bev and I'd be traveling someplace and all of a sudden she would wake me up.
I used to have a bad habit of going to sleep at the wheel. I've gotten beyond that, I think, but, uh, but it used to be tough. You dare not lose your focus for one minute, and if you have, you better regain it or end up paying the price. As Jim Elliott said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Focus on that, and you'll never go wrong. Let's stand together. Father, help us this morning to be keenly aware of the deadly devices of the devil. Let us be mindful of what it is that he's trying to do in our lives. May we ever be vigilant. May we be on guard 24 hours a day. And help us, as Nehemiah did, to have the courage to stand in the face of the enemy and say, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. For we pray in Jesus' name. And now as we sing and we extend to you this verse of invitation, Maybe if you've lost your focus, this would be a good time to regain it and get back on track. You come while we sing.